Welcome to You, Me and from Football Whispers, the nostalgic podcast which goes back to the 90s each week to remember an iconic player from that decade. This week I'm joined by football writer Kristen Hennage, who's written for CNN, The Guardian and The Eye, among many others. Kristen, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? I'm not too bad at all. Thank you very much. Well, Kristen, you obviously, those who know their regional accents will probably just about detect a slight northeast lilt in yours. Um, it only seems right then, as we've got you on, that we want to talk about the greatest goal scorer in Premier League history, Newcastle's favourite son, Alan Shearer. How can you sum? How do you sum up Alan Shearer, uh, and what what he means to you? I think he's he's the man that lived a thousand football fans or a million Newcastle fans' dreams. Really, when when I think about it, that's what he did. He he went from Gosforth to. The Gallagher, which I think is is the ultimate journey for anyone that even loves that football club a little bit. When you, you mentioned it there straight off the bat, born in Gosforth, played locally for Gosforth High School and latterly for the famous Wallsend Boys Club, um, a very famous club. You know, a lot of the great kind of northeast players and, and, and Newcastle United stars have come through that club. As a, a native of the northeast, tell us about the kind of significance of Newcastle United and what it would have meant for a, a young lad like Shearer growing up in the area area even to go on and play for the club he sported it's interesting that one with the walls and boys club because i i just remarked to um atlanta united's academy director recently a guy called tony annan who's who's from the northeast as well that it says a lot that i grew up in durham but was born in newcastle but i knew what walls and boys club was i knew what its significance was so it, it reached much further than walls and much further than newcastle and as you said there yourself it, it's been the incubator for a lot of Northeast talent, not just those that came to, to play for Newcastle. Michael Carrick is the one that jumps out to me. And I think if if anyone listening is curious about this place, because it's a very historic and iconic place as it relates to the Northeast. And, and I don't think they'll ever make a place like it again, if I'm honest. I think it's got a lot of character to it and just little touches now when, when Carrick talks about the, the boys are in his his book, this kind of parquet-like floor where they would play. I would encourage anyone to just grab that book and have a read of it because it will perhaps even invoke some memories of, of your own childhood playing football. Because I think at some point we all played five-a-side on those wood floors with the giant tennis ball-like footballs that, that were around at the time. And and it's where a lot of skills are, are learned, really. It, it's, it sounds oxymoronic to say, but it's, it's indoor street football, which, like I say, is, is an odd phrase to to use but that's as close as I can think to to find in English and I think that's why so many players came from the region during that period because you had what was such a dedicated time and and I always think of Gordon Strachan as well who talks about when he was coming up and even when he had made it as a professional just hitting a ball against the wall with the the rationale that he would get 10,000 touches in in a couple hours and that was going to be more beneficial for his development than maybe even a two, three-hour session where he would only touch it 50 times. And and that's where I think of Walls End Boys Club and, and its ability to just give young people in the region a dedicated and focused avenue to play football. Absolutely. Who are some of the other names that kind of the alumni of the Walls End Boys Club that you could name off the top of your head, just for those who aren't as well versed in it? Well, I think I think any anyone that's anyone really, I mean, you've, it has associations to like Sir Paul Gascoigne and people like that. I mean, the, the region itself, modern day, you, you look at Jordan Henderson and mm. uh, Jordan Pickford, who did not come through that school, but they're the two shining lights. This was Newcastle's equivalent in the sort of 70s, 80s, early 90s. I mean, it's, to be fair, it's still going now. It's not, it's not dormant or been mothballed, but I think it's just such a more difficult proposition to try and make it professional these days in terms of, of producing players, which is, has made it, I think, just a little bit less relevant in the hierarchy of, of football development. We, of course, very much associate Alan Shearer with Newcastle United and being a Newcastle fan and what have you, but it did, of course, start his career at the other end of the country with Southampton in the late 80s. He scored a hat-trick on his full debut at the Dell in a 4-2 win over Arsenal, in doing so becoming the youngest player to score three times in an English top flight match at 17 years and 240 days. It's worth touching on his Southampton career because he did play there for a good few years into the 90s. 
what was a very young Alan Shearer like? And was there any indication at that time of what he'd go on to become in English football? Well, there was a lot more hair, um, <laughs> for starters, which, which I, I enjoy looking at those photographs for that reason. Um, I think, you know, what I found really interesting is I'm, I'm not going to claim to have had consciousness at that point, but going back and reading through stuff, you look at him breaking a record held by Jimmy Greaves and you think, crikey, this must have been written in the stars. And yet at the same time, I, I watched something with Matt Latisky where he said, you know what? I always thought Alan could go on and have a professional career in the game because he had the physical presence, he had the mental determination. But if you told me he was going to lead the Premier League goal-scoring record by some 60-odd goals. I don't know if I would have believed that. And it was interesting because the reason for Letizia saying that was that he was flanked Shearer by Rodney Wallace and Matt Letizia at Southampton. And by Letizia's own admission, they weren't wingers in the traditional sense that we think of it for that period with chalk on their boots crossing the ball in. They were, we want to drive inside. And Alan had to do a lot of selfless running, which, to be fair, I think that's, kind of been a theme throughout his career that maybe doesn't get as much coverage as that yeah wonderful goal scorer very, very almost selfish in that regard but could put a cross into could could work for the team and contribute in ways that maybe we don't always consider nines did at that time but now we consider essential in terms of this complete forward that now inhabits the modern game. Good point, actually, there. Something that I hadn't thought of, but you're right. And you're right to bring it up that, you know, the role of the number nine, as we understand it, has changed. What was a, an archetypal number nine expected to do in the early 90s, do you think? I, th- I think usually bring it down with their chest and either play it to an advancing midfielder or get a shot off. I, th- I think the mm. role was, was a much more simplistic one. And so the metrics for success were much easier to define. It was just about goals. And, and that's where, and I never thought that when we started this, I would bring Emil Heskey into this conversation, but that's <laughs> perhaps maybe a little bit of a tipping point with someone like Emil Heskey, where people started to say, well, actually, Emil Heskey brings other players into the game. He is not necessarily the goal scorer that bursts through at Leicester City. He's now this facilitator. And I think that's where we start to see this change of, you know what, Assists can be just as important as goals, says the former creative midfielder at Sunday League level. <laughs> but, but that type of, of more well-rounded player leading things up front it is an important evolution, I think, for, for English football. And one that I think Shearer was able to, to really straddle, which is, is quite impressive when you consider when his career started and when it eventually finished. Well, it was a very gradual kind of easing into the, the team at Southampton, scored four times in 31, uh, 36 appearances in the 90-91 season. The following season, got 13 in 41 and earned his first England call-up, scoring on his debut against France. What was the hype around Shearer like at this stage as he became kind of more well-known um, to, to a wider audience, I suppose, outside of a Southampton fan base? I, th- I think it, it was somewhat tentative. So I, I was fortunate to, to attend an evening with, with Alan Shearer a few years ago and, and he sort of talked through lots of these periods and, and it's, it's interesting to me to kind of hear him reflect on it and specifically that, that move that Blackburn and the first time that Man United try and sign him mm-hmm. and this, this real sort of fork in the road, this crossroads moment for him, sliding doors moment you could even say where he essentially asks for a bit of patience because he said he would give Kenny Dalglish a few days and Man United just don't call him back. Now, there's a few ways to interpret that. I, I would look at that possibly as Man United being almost offended at being, at, at being asked that. Possibly there's an element of them not thinking he's that good or he's worth that much hassle. But I think if you look at his, his record for Southampton, just in the numbers, which I think is, is another facet of the game that has changed in terms of we don't just look at those columns, goals, appearances, etc. We, we do go much deeper with these statistics and analytics. 100 and I think 18, 19 games, 20-odd goals. That's not a startling record, really, for a, for a striker. And I think that's where we sort of look at things and say, well, yeah, okay, maybe there was a, a growth and a development in him or as Letizia alluded to, was it just a case of actually the role he was playing 
was not one of goals and it was a little bit ahead of its time in that sense. Southampton manager at the time, Ian Branford, claimed to be the most popular manager in England with calls about Shearer coming in right, left and centre, as you say. Manchester United were one of the, the, the early kind of interested parties, but he joined Blackburn for what was a British record at the time, 3.6 million. Without kind of speculating too wildly, how different might things have been, do you think, in terms of his career if he had gone to Manchester United? Yeah, it's an interesting one, that, because when Patrick Clivert joins Newcastle many years later, there was a bit of a difficulty in, in fitting those two into the team. Not, I think, from a, a personality standpoint, just how do you work those two tactically? And as soon as you mentioned potentially going to Man United, my mind jumped to Roy Keane, and I just... Wow, talk about petrol and, and matches put together that. Those two had their, their, their scraps on the field several times that I can think of, um, including I think there was an instance where at one point Roy Keane threw a ball at Shearer and Shearer asked him if he wanted yes. to sign him for it, which is, is one of the more cutting lines from Shearer. And I think he doesn't get enough credit for his ability to, to be quite sharp with his wit like that. But... I have to think he would have won more trophies. I mean, does it change potentially Blackburn winning the title? You would have to say yes, just because of the goal return. Mm. Does it maybe even change how Man United do in Europe before that famous 99 European Cup? It, it's certainly a discussion I could have in a pub for six or seven hours um, with pen and paper next to me. I, th- I think that's that's the thing you have to look at, is that he was such an amazing forward that, even just watching his goals back in, in the build-up to doing this, who could score so many different types of goals. There was, a, I think, a chip against Norwich at one point. There was shots that were just pure power. There was placed finishes, side foot through the laces. It, it really was a variety of, of different goal-scoring opportunities that he could convert. And mm. that, to me, is, is what really makes, in my mind at least, a, a truly great forward because it makes it so impossible for the defender to truly identify what is the greatest threat because you know that really they are the greatest threat. It doesn't matter how the ball falls. It's just whether they get to it or not. We'll leave it there and then we'll be back after a short break to discuss the move to Blackburn Rovers and Shearer's first real tournament involvement with England. Welcome back to You Me and today we're joined by Kristen Hennage, Newcastle supporter and freelance journalist who's talking to us about the great Alan Shearer. At the point we left it, Shearer was on the verge of moving to Blackburn Rovers, what was a British record transfer three, transfer fee, 3.6 million. Uh, it's a very different time in British football, of course, if that's the kind of record fee and the fact that Blackburn with a club spending that kind of money. Can you just set the scene of the premiership as it was known then in 1992, Kristen? Yeah, it was this bold new era. It was, I, I tried to think of kind of my first memories of the Premier League and it was desperately trying to get the shiny Premier League album in the Panini sticker book because it just looked so amazing, this lion. I mean, you know, that in itself is going to conjure these grand images. Um, but I think it was, it was an evolution for televised football as well, which was important to remember because today we're very blessed to be able to, to watch largely any game we want. I think the fact that I've currently been watching the Belarusian Premier League highlights that. But in, in terms of English football, there was maybe a bit more of a focus on a single game, whereas now you were starting to see more and more football and that in itself, I think, would only be seen as a good thing. And we look at the Premier League now, this giant structure, this organisation that reaches far and wide, broadcasts across the globe and, and makes a lot of money doing so. And the very genesis of it, the very start of it, I don't know if we would have predicted that. That's the other thing where I think it's an interesting watch because, yes, the Premier League was this new thing. It, it looked shiny and all of that. But with that new adaptation that new evolution there comes a slight uncertainty about whether you're actually making the right decision and and you would have to say now that it absolutely was the right decision because of of where the Premier League since gone in in the the years since. Well knowing what we do now about Alan Shearer Kristen obviously went on to become one of England's highest scorers and the the top scorer in Premiership history 
there was a time when he was really struggling on the international front and went kind of two years without a goal from his debut goal against France to scoring his second goal against uh, Turkey a couple of years later. Talk to us about that period of, of Shearer's career on the international front, if you can, and, and, and what he kind of went through at that in that kind of couple of years. Yeah, that, that's an interesting one in the sense that I think time has really smoothed out the edges on, on that portion of, of Shearer's career. Because for me personally, as someone who at that point was just a, a fan, I don't remember a great deal before it. It was more Euro 96 that entirely eclipsed that and the goals that he scored um, and just his play in general. He seemed very confident in an England shirt. Now, perhaps some of that is playing alongside Teddy Sheringham. I know he's been very complimentary about that partnership and the fact that if you look, I think, throughout Shearer's career, when he's had an intelligent forward alongside him, someone who is, is perhaps willing to be the second best goal scorer in that group, whether it's Chris Sutton, Les Ferdinand, Teddy Sheringham, he's tended to find success um, and he's tended to appreciate that selflessness. Um, And I think that is what makes the the period of struggle a little bit interesting is that it didn't really last that long in the context of his career. It it was very much a snapshot moment. And I think was maybe a little bit indicative of, of England's struggle in general, failing to get to to USA 94 and things like that. So I I do sometimes wonder if maybe the improvement was the consequence of just a better understanding of how to get the best out of him. In 93, 94, we began to see what Rovers were and Shearer were about. He scored 31 in 40 as Blackburn finished runners-up in the Premier League. He was Football Writers Association Player of the Year and this was his kind of most successful season to date at this point. How was he kind of viewed and, and had he changed? Had he developed as a player since he broke through at Southampton in your eyes? Yeah, I think, I think he had developed. I think he, more than anything, when I compare the two, he looks bigger, um, which, I mean, you can't rush that process really. I think we we saw that with, with some other young England strikers. That, again, to draw Emil Heskey, which was not something I thought I would be doing in this discussion. But there was a player that I think was needlessly given extra muscle and extra weight work when really he was far better as his initial incarnation. And I think with, with Shearer, it benefited him to be stronger. I think it allowed him to, to not only, because I think he was in general quite a, a physically imposing forward who used his body really well, but it meant that he had more clout behind him. Now, you will come on to this, I imagine at some point, there were times he crossed that line undoubtedly. Um, yeah. But... But it was part of his game to intimidate forwards like that, to make it difficult for them. And I think you can certainly see that at key points through his career. The, the one that instantly jumps to my mind is, is the goal for Newcastle against Chelsea where he holds off Marcel Desailly like he's a schoolboy and, and turns him and, and shoots and scores. And, and that, to me, very much kind of typifies what sort of the final form of, of Alan Shearer's game was. It was someone who yet could, could run through and... and fire home with, with real power, but could also use his body to, to really bully defenders when he wanted to. And ahead of the 94-95 season, quite an integral, uh, quite an important moment, I think, in, in what was to follow, of course, was the arrival of Chris Sutton to bolster that Blackburn attack, um, the SAS as they became known. How good a pairing were they at the time? And all these years later, how do they kind of stand up in the, the pantheon of great Premier League um, strike partnerships, something which we probably see less and less of than we did in the 90s? Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think the, the strike partnership is something we see less in it. And yet it was very prevalent when I grew up. I, I can vividly remember coaching that I got as a youngster about how the strike partnership should move like windscreen wipers. You should go across together. You should be always close to to the person you're playing alongside. And and I think in terms of where you rank and chronicle Sutton and Shearer, you have to put them up there just because they've got that Premier League winner's medal. Um, Mm. I think it would be unfair otherwise. And and, and for Sutton, yeah, I don't think he gets... uh, you know, a great deal of discussion about his ability and his quality. I think he was a little bit unfortunate the time he really came to prominence that there were a lot of very good footballers in his position 
Um, and that's where I, I do think sometimes it can be a bit difficult to really evaluate a player's quality based on the number of, of international caps they got because a lot of it is timing. And I think I think with Sutton, as I said before, one of the things that she really appreciated was that selflessness. It, it was the ability to create as much as he scored and in some cases create more than he scored for, with Chris Sutton because I think he knew that it was very much a case of giving Alan the chances to, to score those goals. And I think that's why the two are such good friends to this day, because I think Shearer looks at that as, as an admirable quality that someone can be selfless and, and be such a good teammate to, to better the overall situation instead of thinking quite selfishly, you know, I, I want the goals, I want the glory, because we've seen enough players with that mentality and and why it's ultimately cost teams down the years. Shearer scores 34, Sutton scores 15, Blackburn win the premiership, as we all know, so it clearly worked. What was the ripple effect of that win? And and we know now it's remarkable because only so few teams have actually won the premiership, but what was it actually like at the time, in, 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 you know, in, in the midst of it all, that a team of Blackburn's ilk, albeit they were kind of coming force for a while, actually did what was probably unthinkable? To a to up to a certain point and, and and won the Premier League Premiership title. You look at the modern era and, and Leicester City are perhaps the last. In fact, no, perhaps they are the last team to really shock by winning a Premier League title. We didn't really see that as a new dawn of a football club. We saw it as a memorable moment in time. It was different then because the Premier League was still so new and so young, and you you did think, well, okay, this has to be the start of some sustained brilliance. And I think, unfortunately, we we almost over-anticipated that this was not the match just lighting itself. It was more the match burning itself out and, and that things were about to to go down for, for Blackburn on the other side of that hill, which is, is such a shame because I think that team, yeah, we talk a lot about the, the money that... Um, went into building it and putting it together. But there were some very good players that maybe we don't talk about as much, the likes of Graham Lasso, Colin Hendry, Tim Flowers. The, these were players that helped win that title in their own way and maybe didn't grab the headlines as much. And, and even then, as, as much as people might want to say that it was a, a title that was bought with big money, I've seen a lot of teams put together for big money that don't achieve anywhere near the goals they set out for. So that there's a certain element of it's so much easier to, to sit back and, and lob stones at a team like Blackburn for, for the way it was constructed. But actually, I think it's a really important uh, pillar in Premier League history just because it ushered in the idea that something new could happen. And I think that's what the Premier League was supposed to represent at that time. This is new, this is different, and we should embrace the change that comes with it. And I think Blackburn winning the title in the way they did it, with the players they did, really embodied that in a way that I don't really think I've necessarily seen since possibly Leicester. I was going to say, how little did we know that that was not going to usher in a brave new era for for kind of everybody to have a go at the title. Well, skipping ahead to the summer of 96, Shearer hadn't scored in 12 international games prior to the European Championships on home soil. The kind of mood of the nation wasn't great was it Kristen there wasn't the expectation how did how did Shearer in England shatter those expectations that summer and what part did Shearer play in it all in what was a very memorable summer for the country he played a massive one I I remember watching um the Holland game with an uncle of mine who is a Sunderland fan um and and the greatest compliment you can give Alan Shearer is when a Sunderland fan appreciates his ability because he's got every reason to hate him. He really does. Um, and the same is true of, of Kevin Phillips and Newcastle fans. And, and I think for, for Shearer, what was so important for him was the faith that Terry Venable showed in him. And I think I see that faith present itself again when Sir Bobby Robson becomes Newcastle manager, because it does proceed or, or, or arrives after, excuse me, a, a, a period of, I don't think self-doubt from Shearer, but self-doubt from the people above him that make the decisions, whether it's Rude Hullet at, at Newcastle. And, and I think he almost appreciates someone believing in him again and it motivates him in a different kind of way. And yeah, you know, it's interesting. We've been able to watch some of these games back during mm. quarantine lately. And 
I could see certain people saying, you know, oh, Shearer should have squared it here or he should have done this. But I almost think you can't really take that element out of his game because then he's not the all-time leading Premier League goal scorer. I, th- I think that self-belief, so, some of the goals he scored for England, I think there was one against Portugal where he essentially half volleys it from about 25 yards out. He, he's in on goal. He could take three, four more touches if he wants and really get close to goal. That kind of confidence to strike a ball like that and take that shot is something that, for me personally, I just have to admire because I know I couldn't do that myself. I would be getting it down, taking a big deep breath, trying to steady myself as much as possible. And that's just not the player he is. And I think it's that kind of attitude, that trust in yourself, which is something we've probably seen quite heavily with The Last Dance and and Michael Jordan. Mm. It's something that is so rare, but yet when applied to talent, it's almost unstoppable. Well, I've just looked that goal up as you were talking uh, because I'm ashamed to say I didn't, couldn't instantly recall it and you're absolutely right in your recollection it's a wonderful goal you should seek it out on youtube if you can it's on the england channel i think it's paul gascoigne who flicks a little ball over the the, the center half and Shearer has oceans of space in front of him. He could quite easily get it under stride on and slide it home but he just wallops it home instead and i think that speaks for where he was at in his career at that point is that he had the confidence to to just take it first time like that We'll cut it short there, I think, and we will have a short break and then we'll be back with part three to talk about the move to Newcastle United, coming home and the first kind of spell or first period of his time on Tyneside. Don't go anywhere. Right, well, welcome back to you, me, and today I'm joined by Kristen Hennage, Newcastle United supporter and freelance football journalist to talk about who else? Alan Shearer. His stock at an all-time high up to this point of his career. Alan Shearer, United come back in for him, but Manchester and uh, United's chairman at the time, Martin Edwards, claims Blackburn refused to allow Shearer to move to Old Trafford, but ultimately he joins Newcastle United for a world record, fifteen million, which you know seems ridiculous. That's twenty-eight million in today's money. I read somewhere. It's his boyhood club, managed by his the, his kind of hero growing up, Kevin Keegan. Firstly, how significant was this deal in terms of the transfer landscape, the money spent and the kind of ramifications of that for clubs around Europe? Oh, it, it was massive. It, it was a fee that felt, I think at the time, gargantuan. And, and, and you look at what are the world record fees now, and we sort of, I think we're a lot more analytical as a sport in terms of the, the transfer fees that are paid. And, and some of that is the interconnectivity of social media means we can debate this with colleagues at the drop of a hat. Mm. But I, th- I think when I reflect on it now, it's an absolute bargain. It's possibly one of the best deals the club's ever done. And, and at the same time, it felt so huge as well. It really did. Whether, whether you want to talk about his unveiling, you know, with the, the brown ale branding that is, is so prominent in this era in front of that many fans, or even just the small details. And this is something that I, I really do love about Kevin Keegan, the man. There, there is a, a reverence and a, a principle in Keegan that, I think he has ultimate respect for football fans, especially Newcastle fans, that I think has served him so well. As much as we want to talk about the emotive side of him, the, the club were on tour abroad at the time. Um, I think they just finished the game against uh, a Hong Kong select. And the news had broke that Shearer was going to join Newcastle and all this kind of stuff. And, and as you can imagine, the press conference, it was Alan Shearer this, Alan Shearer that. And, and Keegan very calmly said that they wanted to make a very brief statement just confirming that it was true but anything else he didn't want to talk about right now he wanted to wait until he could get back to Newcastle and paraphrasing his words slightly talk to our people about this because it's their money it's their season ticket money all all this kind of stuff that has helped contribute to buying Alan Shearer and I think that sense of this is for you is something that is so difficult to replicate today and, and so difficult to do in a way that feels, I think, true to its, its sentiment, that doesn't feel disingenuous. Um, and, and for that reason alone, just watching 
that video fairly recently as I did, I couldn't help but smile because I thought, yeah, there, there's someone who is in charge of this club that is making decisions for this club at that time that does really care, that does most likely agonise over, is this the right thing for not just the present, but the future of the club as well? A nice kind of antidote, I think, to all the cynicism and, you know, some of the, the less savoury things about modern day football to you say all that what did it mean to Newcastle do you think then to have the best number nine in the country coming home and, and for Shearer himself to be to be going home turned down United to do it as as we're led to believe a real statement on his behalf right that you know there, there was more meaning to playing for Newcastle than potentially going to United and winning untold trophies you know when when you talk about those potential trophies, European Cups, Premier League titles, all of that stuff. He sacrificed that to essentially hold a record in Newcastle. It's one of those things that I've never fully understood with Man United fans. And and perhaps the best comparison would be, imagine if Marcus Rashford had come through at a different club and had the choice between, I'll not say Man City, because that doesn't necessarily translate as well, but even say Chelsea or Man United, where they are right now. Maybe it's better if it's Man City, I'm not sure. But he chose Man United because that was the club that struck a chord with him. And even if he didn't win anything, he would just be happy to have found success in his terms at that club. I don't think you can ever really get mad at someone for that or even lament them for it because that's kind of why we all get into football anyway. It's because we want to represent that team that we cheer on, is that if you asked us... To pay £10 a week to play for our team, we do it. Never mind being paid a lot of money on the other end of that spectrum. So I, th- I think for me, him going back was, you could argue it was the certain realisation of Sir John Hall's dream, which was to put some ambition into Newcastle again, because Keegan coming back was ambition. Um, Sir John Hall's takeover, which was a, a very complicated situation that TIFO have, have recently told very well and I would encourage you to go and, go and seek that out that was about ambition coming back to the football club and, and a sense of pride and and you argue that Shearer is the final piece of that jigsaw because he's someone that escaped this region and yet is coming back and, and giving us a second chance to enjoy him which is is potentially you know, more than, than they deserved at that time. Finished the first season, his first season on Tyneside with 25 and 31 in the Premiership, won the Golden Boot for the third season in a row and was PFA Player of the Year for the second time. Newcastle runners-up once more, but kind of building on what you said in your previous answer there, Kristen, how fondly is this team remembered by Newcastle fans I think loved by neutrals as well, to be honest, the entertainers, the, you know, the 4-3 games against Liverpool and so on, and just the complete commitment to attack and little else. How do you sum up that period, even without silverware? They obviously lost two cup finals as well in 98-99, so slightly later, but as a whole, how do you look back? How fondly do you look back on that period in Newcastle's history? It's... So often it's the first video I search for when I want to just immerse myself in in Newcastle Um, because there are just so many memories that typify, I I guess you could call it the reckless abandon Mm. or the the enthusiasm with which they attacked. And and that's the thing, that that there's been so many myths about what Newcastle fans want and and this kind of thing. The, The truth is, foundationally, I think they want hard work, which that team did have, actually. But I think what made the entertainers, as they were known, so special was, was things like the games against Wimbledon where Vinnie Jones went in goal. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching Philippe Albert race forward, the centre-back race forward. There, there were a lot of elements, and I, and I think sometimes we're guilty, and I can admit this myself, of, of considering the football that came before us as rudimentary by comparison. But there were undeniably elements of today's game that we hold in such high esteem that were present in that. Ball-playing centre-backs, things like that. You know, passing and moving, very short build-up play from back to front. It it really wasn't um, a kick-and-rush team. It was one that really wanted to try and dominate the ball in all avenues. Even 
that that five nil that we talked about against Manchester United. The, if you watch the fifth goal from Philippe Albert, the chip is yeah. is yeah, it's it's breathtaking. But the build up play before it is wonderfully smooth as well, and and at the same time it feels so instinctual when you watch it. And I think the ability to to organise players and coach players in that way is is what made it so memorable because it felt as if you were watching just musicians. That's the best way I can put it. Musicians play together who maybe hadn't seen each other for six months or a year, but just understood how to work together and how to get the best outcome. And I think so many teams just couldn't handle that. And, and that's what made it so brilliant. We touched on those two FA Cup finals, 98 and 99, defeats to Arsenal and Manchester United, obviously the, the treble winning United side. Time kind of moves on and obviously Keegan departs. Is there a feeling of kind of an opportunity missed for Newcastle supporters in Shearer or does the or do the the memories picked a lot picked up along the way kind of atone for the the failure to actually land silverware and in a very English way, the kind of glorious failure, does that make it quite an you know, achievement in itself, I guess? Yeah, there's there's quotes to that effect about the the hottest romances burn the quickest or something to that effect that spring to mind. That It, it was a moment in time, undoubtedly. And, and I think when I look back at things, Keegan going was, was undeniably a disappointment and it was devastating in a lot of ways um, because I think he was just such a wonderful person. And I, I've never had the pleasure of his company, which is something I would love one day. But I think what compounded it unfortunately, was the decision to appoint Kenny Dalglish because that team went from such a vibrant attacking team that scored over 70 goals to I think they got 35 in Dalglish's first year. I think the top scorer got six and that was John Barnes. That's and right, yeah. you, you, had, you had a team that felt like it just radiated energy that was a little bit electric. And, and maybe some of this is nostalgia talking, but you had that feeling around that team and it was replaced with a much different kind of energy. And I, I don't know why these things stick in your memory, but I can remember the back page of the paper with Ian Rush and John Barnes posing in their Newcastle shirts and a cross on the new of Newcastle United above the um, stand and old written above it. And, and it's things like that where you think, you know what, you, you're very young at the time, so you're easily influenced by those kinds of things. But it was just difficult to get excited about that. And, and yeah. when you had grown up with a club that was ambitious and, and had the likes of Fastino Asprey and David Ginola and things like that, you didn't really know how to react because it was so different to what you were used to. Older fans, I'm sure, have a much different perspective on this. But for me personally, going through it, it, it was just something that I didn't fully understand because now all of a sudden we weren't as good as we used to be and, and we were being humiliated by Liverpool at home and, and Michael Owen was bursting through the defence time and time again. It, it was a very difficult period to adjust to and, and I think that's what made it so much more difficult was it was such a stark contrast to what had gone before. We'll be taking a very short break though before we return to discuss uh, Newcastle under Rude Hullet and later, Sir Bobby Robson. So something a bit happier to move on to. Welcome back to You, Me And. I'm joined today by Kristen Hennage, sports journalist for a number of publications and, crucially, Newcastle United fan to talk about Alan Shearer. Um, at the point we left it is the kind of a, a period of disappointment after the highs of uh, the Kevin Keegan era. Uh, we discussed Kenny Dalglish's stint as Newcastle manager. Well, it kind of went from bad to worse, I guess, with with Rude Hullet. And the, the 99-2000 season for Shearer began with his first professional red card in what was his 100th Newcastle appearance. And then, of course, the the, the, the controversy that was being dropped by Hullet for the time we're Derby. Um, talk to us about that game and the kind of fallout of that. It ultimately cost Hullet his job, um, but it was a pretty unhappy marriage at the time, wasn't it, between player and manager and ultimately someone that 
Um, Hullet made, you know, made Shearer captain of Newcastle for the first time in a, a full-time capacity. Yeah, it was... This, this will firmly date this moment in time because I listened to this game in the car on the radio um, and I, I, I don't know how to feel about Rude Hullet, if I'm honest, when it comes to his time as Newcastle manager because, again, you could argue like Dalglish, the, the previous history, his time in management, the signs were positive. He had done a fairly good job at Chelsea wonderfully gifted footballer himself during his playing days um and you thought well that would translate quite effortlessly but Mm -hmm. then you 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 sort of look at those type of situations now and you think well so often the reason that players like Hullet fail is because they can't relate to the players that aren't on their level they struggle to comprehend it Roy Keane is is one that always springs to my mind when I think of that and yet you would think there would be an element of of Hullet aligning with Shearer because there is arguably the club's best player at the time. And yet, I think what actually caused the friction between them two is that they were such strong characters. And I think Hullet didn't like the idea that there was someone close to his level in terms of power. Mm. And, you know, he he did achieve some things while Newcastle managing. You know, they they got close to, to Wembley and there was some positive moments but when it comes to that derby for someone who's played for the clubs that he has you would just think he'd know more than anyone that you can't take that risk and it was as 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 funny as it is it was a moment in time in the sense that to me at least it started to really typify the rise of Sunderland and the decline of Newcastle Mm. um because you know, the poor lad who, who started up front in his place. Mm, Paul Robinson, wasn't it? Yeah, un- unless he got a hat-trick, <laughs> it was going to be really difficult. And even then, it would have to be in a 3-0 win. Um, and there's an element of, of that that is you, you can't win when you drop Alan Shearer like that because even if they had won 3-0, I can guarantee someone in a pub in the shadow of that stadium would have said, you know, we could have won six if Shearer had started. And, mm. and it's, it's that... It's difficult because I saw it a little bit with, with Jamie Carragher and Steven Gerrard when their careers at Liverpool. There's a point where that player goes from being the fuel that drives the club to a little bit of a, a dead weight. And that might sound almost callous to say, but it becomes the point where your inclusion of them and even just removing them at all feels like such sacrilege. And yet it's probably for the best. That wasn't where Shearer was at at this point, not even close. It would become that, you could argue, at certain points later down the line. But in actuality, in this moment, this was when they needed him. And I think it's no surprise that Hullick couldn't recover after that because you weren't using the best player that you had. And if you yeah. couldn't strike a relationship with them, why would we trust you to bring anyone else in? Because if you turn sour on them, that's more money wasted. Bobby Robson succeeds Ruth Hullick and... As if to show his approval, I suppose Shearer scores five in an eight-nil win over Sheffield Wednesday, and what was Robson's first match as Newcastle manager? Um, previously, reading around it, I gather that Robson had previously offered somewhere in the region of twenty million for Shearer and ninety-seven while he was Barcelona manager. So he clearly rated him as a player. How integral was uh, Bobby Robson's arrival at St James's Park? in the kind of the second half of Shearer's Newcastle career and some sort of latter-day success in the Champions League and so on? It was absolutely massive. Absolutely. You, it's difficult to truly quantify what Sir Bobby Robson did to that football club because it was at a low ebb when he arrived. And yet almost instantly, he was the tide that raised so many of the ships at Newcastle United. And... I remember just before he got the job, I was in an airport with my family. We were going on holiday and he was there with the PSV squad. And my dad had said, oh, look, it's Bobby Robson. And and I'll be honest, I didn't really know who that was because I was very young. I sort of just missed his, his spell with England. And so it was just one of those people I'd see. And now he was manager of Newcastle and everyone was delighted about it. And, and it was so easy to see why when 
you watch that game against Sheffield Wednesday, the club actually did a live stream of it fairly recently. It was just that injection of confidence again. In, in an ideal world, I don't imagine the timelines would have synced up well enough. But that's who you would have wanted to replace Kevin Keegan. Someone with that same enthusiasm, someone with that same appreciation of, of the job at hand, the football club, its potential. Someone who really inspired the people around him, whether it was an Alan Shearer who was maybe close to 30 or a Kieran Dyer who had barely finished his teens. Someone that could relate to people in that way. I, th- there's a story with Craig Bellamy that I've always appreciated, which was essentially Craig Bellamy and John Carver got into an argument once before a, a European game. And I think there was a chair thrown, which I know sounds so unlike Craig Bellamy. Um, but, but the two of them were arguing. And essentially Robson heard this, told Carver to get on the plane. And, and Bellamy had said, I'm not going. I'm, I'm just, no, not interested. Don't want to be a part of any of this. And Robson just started talking to him. And he just started asking, how's your family? How's the kid? Nothing to do with football. Nothing to do with, please, Craig, I need you to get on this plane. Mm. We've got a game to play. Anything but football. And Bellamy has said that before he knew it, he was sat on the plane and they were taking off. <laughs> and it, it's, it's that ability. I think tactics, and I will probably say this several times during our conversation, they are so integral these days. They really are. And the detail we can go into frightens me sometimes because it, it, it feels like science. And I was never great at science. <laughs> but it's, it's something to be said for the fact that those people who can connect with human beings still have a role to play in this game. Absolutely, they do. And I think it was Gus Poyer that said that really, for a long time, we thought that man management was a ruler where you had to treat everyone the same and you set a standard and and what have you. But it's a lot more, I think, nuanced than that. I think there are certainly people like Craig Bellamy, maybe, that need an arm around the shoulder. There are also those that, that need a kick up the backside. And I think someone who can appreciate that and almost apply it in a way that is so subtle that the people involved don't really fully understand it until they've left the situation. That in itself is, is a skill that transcends football. And I think that's what Sir Bobby Robson was, a person that, that transcended football, that when he did sadly pass, so many people were ready to tell positive stories, whether it was, you know, someone like Alan Shearer or Sean Ramiobi, Andre Villas-Boas, who was just this plucky kid who stuck an envelope under his door one day. There are people across the game that appreciate what he was, which at a fundamental level was just a good person. No, absolutely. Good man management probably doesn't quite do it justice. Shearer retired from England duty just after the 2000 European Championships. How how was this viewed at the time? And how important was it in kind of keeping him going for another six years um, at Newcastle United, do you think? And, And I suppose as well... It shows, you know, where his priorities lay and, and how kind of close he held Newcastle to his, uh, you know, or how important Newcastle was to him, right? Absolutely. I, I think it was integral to his longevity because that's that's something that you have to remember is that this is someone that went through a, a series of, of bad injuries um, that were, I, th- I think they changed the way he played the game to a certain extent. Um mm. The, the one, I think it was at Everton in pre-season, pretty much around the day or the day before, the day after that Newcastle had sold Les Ferdinand to, to Tottenham. That was a really terrible one. And that was part of the reason that he left England, I think, was, was to focus on that record, just to focus on trying to deliver something to Newcastle. And look, I, I think when a player of his quality at his age retires from England duty, you're always going to have critics with something like that. I think when you have, and, and the, the, the name that jumped into my head is someone like David Beckham, who made himself perpetually available for England, would probably still play now if you asked him to, yeah. such as his kind of desire to represent the country. When someone represents the opposite of that, it's seen as unpatriotic. And I don't know, I, I've... I've had a lot of time to think during quarantine, unsurprisingly. (laughs) And there's a part of me that wonders if actually there's a greater service to the country when you think, you know what, I don't know if I can contribute in the same way. And and I saw Paul Scholes talk about that recently with Gary Neville, the idea that 
he just didn't feel like he was in good form anymore. He just didn't feel like he could contribute in the same way. And he was, he was tired of feeling like he wasn't up to the standard. Mm. And there's a, there's an ability or a, uh, a principle in that, that I quite admire the fact that actually there's something to be held in high esteem about representing your country. And if you feel you're not up to the level, that's not necessarily self doubt. That's just putting the team before yourself. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that's kind of what Shearer was doing with this, was that he realised that, you know what, if I want to play for Newcastle, I can't also play for England and do it at the same level. I've, I've been a good servant to my country, scored some very good goals, some very important goals. But this, this dual service is not something I can do, so it's better for all than to keep rejecting call-ups to just retire and, and put an end to that chapter. Kind of continues to score regularly for Newcastle domestically and in Europe and under Bobby Robson they finished fourth, third and fifth between 2002 and 2004. When we spoke earlier about the first kind of period of Shearer's Newcastle career, the 90s and really going for titles, two FA Cup finals, how fondly is this period remembered in kind of contrast? Shearer's still knocking in the goals, Bobby Robson's very popular and maybe with the exception of the Pardew side that finished fifth a few years back, probably the last kind of good, really good Newcastle side. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. The the, the last good one that felt like it was really gunning for something. Mm. Um, there's ones, and I've I've kind of felt this a lot during the the Mike Ashley era of things. That yeah, the the sides will they'll put together enough for a DVD at the end of the season, but it's not one that you'll, you'll go straight to in the cabinet. Um, it's more one you might watch if you channel hopping and it's on. Whereas, like I said, before, six weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Whereas with that, that entertainer side, the Bobby side, that's one where you think you actually really want to watch that again. And the side, it had a lot of the same principles, I think, but it was a different makeup in the sense of, Fastino Espria was, was a, a fairly established player, for example. David Ginola was an established player who was, who was linked to, to Barcelona while he was at Newcastle. Craig Bellamy was not that same kind of player. Mm. Kieran Dyer was not really that same kind of player. It was shopping in different markets compared to that entertainer side. But that principle of excitement, of, of pace, of energy was still there. And, and I think as much of a difficult relationship as Shearer and Bellamy enjoyed while at Newcastle um, and the text messages that were sent. I think actually Shearer had a lot of appreciation for what Bellamy did, which was extend his career a little bit and, and allow him to evolve into a different kind of forward, one that didn't need to run as much, that could be essentially the point man that was to finish things between the posts. Um, and I think for, for that reason, so Bobby Robson's appreciation of Shearer and not trying to get rid of him was another instance of, of him just understanding what was best for the club and understanding what I think most fans wanted, which was for Shearer to continue as long as feasibly possible. He broke Jackie Milburn's 49-year-old record by surpassing 200 Newcastle United goals and became the club's highest ever scorer by notching his 206th and final goal in a 4-1 win over Sunderland. Not quite the way he'd like to have done it because he sustained... Uh, MCL damage in his left knee which effectively brought forward his retirement uh, at the end of that 2005-06 campaign given everything that we've talked about after, over the last hour or so and and the kind of the heroes that you've watched and, and know of prior to Shearer I think I know the answer to this question but is he the ultimate Newcastle United hero or, or does Jackie Milburn perhaps just uh, edge him out in, in those stakes? No, I, I think he's the, the ultimate. Now, whether, you know, the, the recency biases at play there, I, I can't really say because I, I don't have that breadth of, of knowledge of Newcastle history. You need someone who, who saw both. I think what is interesting to me is I, I obviously saw Shira play in person several times. Um, dozens of times in fact when I think about it and and saw him score as well and all those things and that was a beautiful memory and then a couple of years ago a, a friend of mine who um 
worked for a, a popular bookmaker, had an evening with Alan Shearer and asked me if I wanted to, to go and meet him. Um, and I think when I had stopped screaming and booked the train <laughs> ticket, um, I, I got very nervous and um, I, I took a shirt down for him to sign, obviously, as I think any person in their right mind would. And, and I just remember watching him sign it and think, that's mine now. And it was a totally different kind of feeling than I expected. But it was like his entire career had hit me all at once in terms of this is the person sort of I grew up with. It, it wasn't someone that I knew very well. You know, I had a very brief conversation with him. He, you know, a photograph. He was really charming, really lovely. But you realize that actually, and, and I think some athletes do get this, that you do impact so many lives without realizing it. Yeah. And that's not to say that it was anything greatly profound with me, but when I think of the, the memories I have of, of growing up, watching football with my family, some of who sadly are no longer with us, he was the, so often the, the protagonist in those scenarios. He was so often the one driving the team forward, scoring the goals. And uh, even in terms of just the, the, the culture of, of the Northeast growing up, I can't think of a friend of mine who supports Newcastle, who at some point when going up for a header hasn't screamed Shearer and then ran off with one arm up in the air. And it's that kind of thing where you think, yeah, you know, a, a trophy-laden legacy would have been wonderful. Mm. But he still had an impact in his own way. You can still go to Newcastle now and, and see that impact played out. And, and that, for me, is what makes Alan Shearer so special, not just for, I think, the Premier League and Newcastle fans, but just English football is that he is the local boy done good who had a very modest upbringing by his own admission and yet is also this record holder but I don't think has really changed that much as a person still seems the same kind of pretty humble guy that came up from from Gosforth and, and that to me is wonderful as well. I was going to ask you the same question again, but in terms of the Premier League kind of striking greats, but I think the fact that he is still untouched and unmatched as the Premier League's all-time leading scorer probably says everything you need to know. What I will ask you, though, Kristen, if you don't mind, is do you think anyone will ever beat that total of 260 goals? As you said earlier, he's well out in front and Sergio Aguero, had he come a few years earlier, might have been a bit closer. Wayne Rooney looked for a while like he might do it. The fact that those are the probably the two, and we can't. There's no one else off the top of my head. Does that say at all that he has done something that will probably never be surpassed in our lifetimes, or do you think it's inevitable someone will um, overtake that that total one day? It's an interesting question, in so much as I know Shearer himself has said that you know he scored goals pre Premier League that obviously will never be counted because that's yeah. something that people point to as well, he had so much time in the Premier League, what do you expect? But I thought for a decent amount of time, Wayne Rooney might. Um, mm. And, and it, you know, Aguero is a good example. One of, I think one of the reasons I, I struggle, or one of the reasons I think it won't be beaten, is that I think football has changed in the sense that the longevity in that one league is so difficult to attain, I think. I, whether it's dropping down into the championship as a striker or whether it's getting a move abroad or whatever, I, I think that idea of, of a, a decade spent at, at one club is very difficult, even as well as the sustained ability to score goals, score goals after injuries as well. You know, we're talking about that with Harry Kane and, and how will his injuries impact him. I, I do think it's just going to be too difficult for someone to get all of those ducks to, to line up together to make that record-breaking run. It might happen. And to whoever does it, maybe they've been born, maybe they haven't, I don't know. But it will take someone truly special. And I think that's a wonderful legacy for, for Alan Shearer to, to have. If it maintains his record, it shows how brilliant he was. If it is beaten by someone, then again, it shows how special Shearer was because it took someone above that to, to do it. Absolutely right. Finally then, Kristen... What's your favourite Alan Shearer memory in it, or goal? It doesn't have to be something um, particularly iconic. It could be something very personal to you. But if I was to put that question to you, what, what would you say? The Man United 5-0 was lovely because 
it was this sense of vindication and him shaking his arms at the away fans was great. The, the volley against Villa from the side of the goal is underrated for its technical brilliance. But yeah. I think you have to point to that goal against Everton. Yeah. Just because of the technical ability, the power generated, and the fact that at the time, Newcastle needed someone to step up. And personally, I don't know if it's just working as a football writer or whatever, I put a decent amount of stock in, in commentary being this wonderful garnish on top of a football moment. So with Albert's uh, chip against Schmeichel. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, if, if the rest was the cake, there's the icing. A quite yeah. majestic goal from Philippe. I can almost recite it. And for that goal in particular, I just remember the commentator saying, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And that's kind of what I think of with Alan Shearer is someone that whenever Newcastle needed him to step up, he did it and he, he did it admirably. And when you have someone like that who can inspire such confidence in supporters watching, it's a truly wonderful time to be alive. And I think that's what Shearer gave us time and time again. Absolutely. Well, Kristen, thank you. It's been an absolute privilege to listen to you reminisce about Alan Shearer over the last hour. And uh, I'm sure many Newcastle fans would echo a lot, if not all, of what you said. So thank you ever so much for joining us on You, Me and... Make sure you subscribe via Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts. And if there's somebody that you'd like to hear us do a big retrospective on, then make sure you tweet us, send us a message on Instagram or Facebook and we'll endeavour to cover that player sooner or later. And if not, we'll look forward to speaking again on Monday. Thank you very much. (laughs) 